Blog Talk Radio. Hi, and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Today we are joined by our guest host, filmmaker Heather Lenz best known for directing and producing the Sundance documentary, Kusama Infinity. Our special guest today is filmmaker Mara Strauch. She's a director, producer, and writer of documentary films, unscripted TV, branded content, and commercials. Her films have screened at TIFF, Hot Docs, Tribeca, and many other festivals worldwide. Her debut documentary feature, Sunshine Superman, provides a breathtaking tribute to Carl Banish, the creator of Base Jumping. The New York Times hailed it as a masterful debut, and IndieWire called it one of the best docs of the year. CNN picked up Sunshine Superman as a CNN film. Her most recent feature documentary, Vice Versa, China, offers a complex portrait of the late and groundbreaking wrestler, China. It premiered on Vice to over 2 million viewers and can currently be seen on Hulu. Mara holds a degree in fine art from Rhode Island School of Design, which informs her aesthetic approach to both film and commercial work. She's a dual Austrian-American citizen, bringing a global perspective to her work. Thank you so much, Claire, for the lovely introduction. And Mara, thank you so much for being here today with us. I'm a huge fan of your work, so I'm super excited to talk about your films today. Um, For anyone who hasn't seen Sunshine Superman, I would love it if you could tell us a little bit about what it's about in your own words. Yeah, I mean, Sunshine Superman is a film about the invention of base jumping. And uh, base jumping stands for buildings, antennas, span, and earth. And those are the objects that need to be jumped from with a parachute to get a base number. Um, Carl Banish and his wife, Jean Banish, invented the sport in the 1980s. And the film is really drawing upon Carl's work as a filmmaker um, and aerial cinematographer to tell this story in a really intimate um, and cinematic way. Yes, it certainly accomplishes that. It's just an extraordinary film to watch. The footage is completely amazing and the story is fascinating. I'm wondering, how did you first learn about the topic? My uncle, Mike Allen, um, was also an aerial cinematographer and a base jumper skydiver, and I grew up watching his footage. Um, He unfortunately died in a car accident after doing, you know, thousands of skydives and base jumps and uh, a lot of his own aerial cinematography work. And I was making a film about him, 
And while I was making that film, I discovered uh, Carl Banish and Gene Banish and this huge archive of footage. And I really uh, learned a lot more about the topic. And, you know, it was one of those kind of meant to be situations where you follow an instinct and then you come upon a really interesting film. Yeah, I guess that is one of the super interesting things about documentary is how people often start uh, pursuing one topic and it evolves into something else. Um, Carl's wife, Jean, she's just super charming. And I'm wondering if you could talk about meeting her and her role in the film, um, both as a on-camera storyteller and also as the person who was the keeper of this amazing, you know, archival material. Yeah, uh, I found Jean through talking to other base jumpers, and a lot of people had uh, spoken about Carl and Jean. And I wrote Jean a letter, you know, and I said, hey, you know, and I tried to find her on the Internet, and, you know, I actually wrote her a physical letter and sent it. And she invited me to the archive, um, and she also invited me to stay at her house. I mean, she was just very um, open to somebody being interested in this topic, which I thought was really odd because, it, you know, this is, uh, it was just such a right story and just all this footage. And as a documentarian, you really don't find these kind of stories or this kind of archive very often. So she was very open to talking about a documentary. It took a really long time to kind of get into the archival work. Um, and I think to trust me enough to, to be the person who brought forth this story that had never been told. Jean is also a filmmaker and, you know, also a co-inventor in the sport of base jumping. So although Carl is really considered, you know, the Pied Piper and the inventor of the sport, Jean equally, but probably less visibly, also created the sport and helped make these films. So she should get a lot of credit for her contributions as well. Well, there you go. That's where it helps to have a female director telling the story <laughs> to recognize yeah. that. So, um, And I'm wondering how much archival footage do you estimate that, that she had? Like how many hours of footage was she able to share with you? <laughs> Here's the funny thing. I still, you know, I think I don't lie about this question, but I don't really know because it's it, basically the footage is in 16 millimeter reels. So when I walked into the archive, it's this giant um, studio kind of garage area with like wall to wall 16 millimeter footage. And I only was able to get transferred about maybe one eighth of the footage. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah. So, and over time we transferred a bit more and, you know, um, I transferred all of Carl's like most important films, but this was, you know, this huge amount of footage, you know, we're talking like over, over a hundred thousand feet of footage. So it's, it's a man's life's work that I walked into and um, he was really prolific. Like this is a really prolific filmmaker who was documenting, you know, pioneering skydiving and also base jumping. So it was uh, quite a chore to get through it. Yeah, and I know from my own experience how expensive it is also to, to transfer film footage um, to digital. It's just quite expensive and daunting for an indie, indie filmmaker who needs to raise the funds. Um, so... 
in spite of the amazing archival materials, which are just, I mean, they are just breathtaking, extraordinary images, um, but you also filmed reenactments. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what led you to decide that reenactments um, would be required. You know, I think what is missing from Carl's films, his films are almost like music videos. So there's like a song and there's like all this amazing footage of like skydiving and base jumping and people doing stuff. There is no footage that's personal um, or very little. So I think, you know, what was really challenging to me as a filmmaker is I really wanted to tell the love story between Carl and Jean Danish. And I really wanted to give a sense of place with California and Norway. And there just was not the footage there to do that. Um, it would have been a lot of talking heads or, you know, there was not a visual language that existed within the archive to tell this story. And even the footage I found of Carl and Jean Danish was like so limited um, that it would be in like garbage bags of like, footage that I would be like, what's in this bag? And there would be like little clips of Carl testing the camera or like things that, you know, were going to be thrown away. So for me, it was really hard to make a complete um, theatrical film without something to kind of fill in those gaps visually. So for me, it was needed, but I didn't want it to overwhelm the archival. And I think you know, that was a challenge, especially as a first-time filmmaker, because the archival is so glorious, you know? Well, you certainly were up to the challenge because you did such a great job. And, and part of what makes the reenactments so cool is the way they blend in <clears throat> so perfectly with the archival. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the way you approached them. Like, for example, were they shot on film um, and, and the locations you went to um, to, to film them? <laughs> Yeah, um, I was really, really fortunate. I was, you know, at the time a first-time filmmaker, and I met a cinematographer named Vasco Nunez, um, and he unfortunately died in a motorcycle accident, but he came along at just the right time um, when I was trying to figure out this film, and we thought of it as kind of like realms. So there was the realm of archival, there was the realm of reenactments, and there was the realm of what we called fake footage, which wasn't fake, you know, in the sense of like trickery, but was footage that we were really trying to integrate in the film in a way where it was really seamless with the archival. Um, the stuff that was reenactments we were thinking of as an imagination or the space of the imagination. So as a cinematographer, he really helped me um, kind of break apart the story in terms of these different realms of footage and really figure out how to integrate um, you know, we shot on the Ari Alexa, uh, and we shot with cinema lenses, which I think was really helpful. A lot of the people that I talked to at the time were like, that's insane. Why would you do that for a documentary? Like, you know, it's a documentary. Like, that's not what people do. And I'm like, well, you know, especially as a first-time filmmaker, that was really hard to fight for kind of what I believed in. But, you know, it really felt like the footage needed to be good enough to match with the other footage and also have its own tone and voice so that um, it could be a film that, you know, had this archival but also had a, a more emotional language throughout. Well, the reenactments are certainly ambitious, and I'm wondering how Jean felt about them. And it also, you know, you mentioned highlighting this love story between Jean and Carl. So there was 
um, someone playing Jean, and I was wondering if you could talk about who that was. <laughs> um, so I played Jean in the reenactments, which is kind of weird, but basically I was in Norway, which is, again, that's where the film was shot, by the way. It was shot in California and Norway, so many of the reenactments were shot in Norway, and when I was in Norway, um, you know, Jean's a pretty short person. She's about my height, so she's about five foot three, and um, you know, when she was younger, we strangely <laughs> had exactly the same measurements because I fit perfectly in her jumpsuit. And literally nobody in Norway could fit in the jumpsuit because they were all about, uh, they were all much, much taller. And, you know, most of them were blonde. Um, so I was actually the only person that kind of fit the bill to play Jean in this situation. We tried to cast in Norway. It was so expensive to bring anybody in because where we were in Andelsnes is kind of in the middle of nowhere in Norway. So we had to use a lot of the resources which were on hand. So it was kind of just uh, by necessity that I ended up playing Jean, but it ended up being quite funny and Jean loved it. I think, you know, for her it was, I mean, we became really close in shooting this film, and she's a really dear friend of mine still. And I think for her it was, you know, it was a really healing experience. I think the whole project really helped her, um, you know, process a lot of stuff that happened um, in her life. And I think for her it was just quite funny to see me playing her. <laughs> Well, I'm glad she got a kick out of it. She, as a, you know, younger person, she has a distinctive haircut. And I was wondering if you could talk about how you, how you transformed your, your hair. <laughs> um, well, I did not because I have very curly, big hair and she did not. So basically what I did was I got, um, I went to Hollywood Boulevard and went to a, you know, a store that sells human hair wigs, which I didn't even really know anything about. And they cut it to the photographs of her hair at the time. Um, they did an amazing job. It was so cool to, to get this wig, which was the Jean Banish wig. And, you know, it, it was the wig for the film. And it really, um, I think, looked very good. I mean, it was, it was not cheap, but it was a cool, cool thing to watch happen. I love that, and I love hearing a documentary filmmaker talk about all these things because I feel like sometimes there's still this um, outdated belief that documentary filmmakers, um, I don't know, just show up and point the camera at something and, and get a story and, and that they don't go to all these lengths to think about the visuals and, and do all of these other things. So it's, it's cool to hear about. And um, I know, um, you know, you're an indie filmmaker, and I wonder if you could talk about how this film was funded and how long it took you to make it. You know, it's such a, um, it's such a kind of twisty, turny route to get this film financed. I was a, uh, a commercial editor, uh, kind of branded content editor uh, in New York City. And my, when my uncle died, he put a lot of his footage, or my dad inherited a lot of his footage, and it was sitting in my dad's basement. And I was kind of home visiting, and I saw this footage, and I was like, oh, my gosh, what is this? This is frigging amazing. And so I had this footage, and I was thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, I should do something with this. I don't know what. I wasn't even really a filmmaker. I'd gone to art school, and I did a lot of art films. And so I eventually kind of ran into Josh and Dan Braun through this 
friend of a friend and they are sales agents and producers and I showed them this footage and they're like, this is a movie. We didn't really know what the movie was about yet. <laughs> and luckily during that time I met Jean Banish and then I had access to this entire archive and the project kind of evolved. Um, I, I didn't know it was commercial and essentially getting to know them, I realized it was commercial, but I was learning how to make films as I was trying to finance it. So I got a lot of no's from networks. I got a lot of, which was actually a blessing in disguise because I ended up going, you know, I ended up having to try to figure out how to finance it myself. And I went to the e or the AFM, the American Film Market, and I had a meeting with um, a Norwegian like film fund. And I was like, you know, this is whatever, this is a whatever meeting. Um, and it ended up being this person who really changed my life, essentially, because what he said to me is, you know, you can get a lot of this finance out of Norway because the film takes place there. So, you know, I ended up getting um, the film partially financed out of Norway. I get it, got it partially financed out of Kickstarter and investors that I met on Kickstarter. And then I ended up getting it sold to Universal International. So it was this you know, it was this kind of package that I was able to put together over time. But that said, you know, I, and not that I'm lying, but sometimes I forget how long it took to make, you know, it was between seven and 10 years. Like it was a really long process, but also what needs to be understood is I was also working full time as an editor. So I would edit, 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 use a little bit of that money to transfer the footage. You know, it was this really long process to kind of get it, to where it could sell the universal pictures. Well, it's, I'm so happy for you. It all came together. Uh, I'm wondering, could you tell us where audiences can currently see the movie? And also, if there's anything else you want to add about the film that I didn't already ask you, um, you know, feel free to share that, too. Uh, you can see it on Amazon. I guess it's on Amazon Prime. It's on uh, iTunes. It's on, I guess it's on YouTube with commercials, I'm told. Um, but it, I think if you Google it, you'll see like a million different places that it is. And if you get the DVD, you get a bunch of Carl Banish's films as well, which is pretty cool. Um, and I don't know what else I would have to say about it. It's such an epic journey, I think, you know, and it never ends. It's, it's crazy. People don't tell you that about filmmaking. You know, it's been the longest relationship I've had in my life has been with this film, really. <laughs> well, well, I guess you picked a good one. The DVD you mentioned, where can people get that? Can they buy it at your website or where can they buy it? They can buy it at the Magnolia Film website, I believe. I believe it has a link, and it's also just on Amazon. So you can go on Amazon, and they have copies as well, and it's super cool Blu-ray copies of the film. If you have that nice. kind of access, is super cool. Cool. And so moving on to one of your more recent films, Vice Versa China. Um, for anyone who hasn't seen that film, could you tell us what it's about? The film is about the wrestler uh, who called herself China, um, and it's a film really about the rise and fall of her career and the rise and fall of her as a person, um, and her name actually was Joni Lauer, but she changed it to China when she became a wrestler. 
I see. So just like the subject of Sunshine Superman, I wasn't personally familiar with China, but she's such a compelling um, subject. And I'm wondering how you first learned about her and what led you to make a film about her. Well, I was really fortunate. Um, I had a good friend, um, Mark Myers, and he had a good friend, Daisy Hamilton, who brought me in on this project. So they, Daisy... Um, found this footage, this filmmaker had brought her this hard drive of footage. He had been shooting a movie about China, uh, you know, spoiler alert, I think a lot of people know this, but she passed away. And the footage was footage of her during kind of the last year of her life. And the filmmaker didn't have any more money to make the film, essentially. Like, it had just stopped. And the film was made in these you know, it was just really fly on the wall, very, you know, kind of, it was, there was not really a cohesive story that was built out of it. So it was a lot of footage, but no real story. So this footage was brought to Daisy, and then Daisy and Mark brought me on as the director, and I shaped the story and um, worked with this footage. Yeah, it's super interesting because, you know, as we've talked about, um, indie filmmaking, uh, um, it's very hard to finance films like this. And so part of what makes this um, archival so unusual is that it's from this in-progress and unfinished film. Um, and I'm wondering how much archival did you have access to? Like how, how much had they shot, roughly? I would say roughly about 80 hours of footage. So it was quite a bit of, uh, you know, archival and some interviews. There's also a lot of archival of China during her younger years. So a lot of it was about finding archival that we could not license. So it was definitely a fair use situation, but really going back to a lot of the stuff that was shot of her during her career and kind of combining the footage from this unfinished documentary and the footage of her when she was in the WWE, which is, you know, the wrestling organization that still exists today. Interesting. And um, for anyone listening who isn't familiar with Fair Use, I do want to mention that we did record a podcast um, with um, attorney Jack Lerner about Fair Use. So if anyone wants to listen to that, they can. And I, I also want, just want to say that, um, yeah, some of this archival in the film, it's really gut-wrenching. And I just wonder if you could talk about how you felt after you watched all the footage as you were, you know, diving in to, to shape it and, and film more things to turn it into a, a movie. It was a really, really, really hard uh, film to make and that the footage really, you know, China was a drug addict and the footage, a lot of it is watching her be a drug addict and a lot of the footage is watching people around her really um, uh, using her um, and using her in these ways that were just really sad and, you know, in interviewing people and watching the footage and just kind of getting a full picture of China, you know, it, it was a really heart-wrenching experience. And I think what people don't understand, or maybe they do, but they don't care, is that documentarians a lot of times you know, watch footage that is just super difficult. And it, it feels really, I mean, it felt really traumatizing to me, to be honest. But I think also 
you know, it is about drug addiction. And it, I think if it's not traumatizing, you're doing it wrong, meaning it was such a terrible experience that, um, you know, watching it was terrible, but I'm sure living it was a thousand times more terrible. Yeah, I mean, definitely, I, I hear you on the drug addiction part, but also just on her being surrounded by people that were not stepping up and intervening and, and trying to get her help. Um, I personally feel like this film should be required viewing for film students and really a cautionary tale about uh, pushing, you know, interview subjects too far and prioritizing getting a story over get, being, you know, compassionate and decent. And of course, I'm not speaking about you, but I'm talking about the, the previous team and the way they handled things. So, um, yeah, it's fascinating. So, so obviously, every film has its challenges. And I'm wondering, um, although I always feel bad asking filmmakers this, because I know there's always all these stories they, they can't really talk about. But, but if you <laughs> could talk about some of the challenges you faced uh, making the film and how you overcame them, I would love to hear about that. I mean, there's a lot of challenges. I think, you know, this was a film that was, um, you know, it ended up being financed by Vice and um it was, you know, it was really made in some ways for, for television consumption, although I think it, it really should have had a festival life. I think the challenging thing for me was as a director, you know, having kind of a limited ability to make it the film it should have been. Um, and, you know, not, not anybody's fault, but just kind of the way films are being made now, which is, you know, very closely with networks and very closely with, uh, buyers versus kind of independent, you know, ways of making films like Sunshine Superman, I was able to make with financing from Norway and independent equity investment, which is a very different thing than making something for a network, regardless of how awesome the network is, it's still a different experience. And I think this film particularly, um, I think it should have had a larger audience out of wrestling. Uh, I think it, it is really a film about uh, ethics of documentary filmmaking and I think finding that in the story and being able to structure the story in such a way that I didn't seem like I was condoning this kind of filmmaking um, was really difficult. So keeping myself separate from the other film was probably the biggest challenge in terms of just structuring the film. And I think, you know, um, as a filmmaker and a storyteller, that was, uh, that was an evolving process because it was just so hard because all, most of the footage we had was from the other film. So, you know, again, a lot like Sunshine Superman, I had to take a lot of archival and piece it together with somebody who was no longer with us and create uh, a compelling narrative that really tells the story that I want to tell versus just the story that the archival wants to tell. Yeah. I also think, I mean, this really is a feminist film because China was this absolute trailblazer in this man's world of, um, you know, wrestling and, and you see the way um, she's, um, you know, double standards in terms of how she's treated for various reasons. I don't want to give everything away, but for various reasons, uh, many of them having to do with being a woman. And and so it's just really fascinating, too, to see this woman who's so physically strong and everything she goes through on her journey. And I just, 
it's really, it's just devastating that she wasn't supported for her talents and abilities in the way that she should have been. Um, so I was going to ask you where the film premiered, but you did touch on that, that sadly it didn't get a, a festival premiere like I think it deserved to because it is, you know, such a great film. Um, so did you ever have the opportunity to watch it with an audience or did it just go straight um, to streaming? Well, the really interesting thing about the film is it did go to streaming. It also played live on Vice, which I guess it got over 2 million viewers, which, you know, festival films are cool. But, you know, it is kind of neat to think about how many people actually saw this movie, uh, this television show. You know, like it is a larger audience than I think I've ever had, to be honest. Um, You know, and when it premiered, there was, you know, although I didn't watch it with an audience, I was watching the Twitter feed um, of different people commenting on it, and it was incredible. It was like, it was like something that you know you go to art school and you don't imagine like Hulk Hogan like tweeting about your movie, but Hulk Hogan tweeted about the movie, you know, and it was like a really surreal kind of thing to have all these wrestlers and all these people that, you know, I don't even know how my life kind of ended up interacting with their lives, but it it was pretty um, amazing how many people from how many walks of life watched this movie. You know, it definitely was not an arty kind of movie. And I think the other funny thing to note is I went to Yado, which is an artist colony, um, like about a year and a half ago, and I just finished China just came out and I showed it to the artists at the artist colony and you know I I felt like this is a TV thing these people are not going to really like it and it was great everybody stayed up into the night watching the China movie and so I was really proud that it had such a range of audience and um, you know it could be an enjoyable thing for such a wide group of people really to me is what I want my films to do. Well, I think it's an incredible film. I mean, I'm not someone that is, um, you know, actively part of like the wrestling community or watching that kind <laughs> of content, but I love the film. I think it's just amazing. And and I was wondering if you had the opportunity after the film was made to talk with anyone from China's family and I wondered, um, you know, if they how they felt about the film. If that's I don't know if that's something you can talk about. Maybe it's too delicate. No, I think it, it can, you know, I it's always a fine line in documentaries um, because you want people to speak to you and you want, um, you want them, you want to be real with them in terms of their expectations, in terms of how they're going to come across and how the story is going to come across. And you always want to be fair. Um, So I think, you know, with her family, it was really important to me to really show their side of it but not to embellish it or not to try to make them look great and to not make China look great. I mean, the reality of it is she had a lot of problems. She was not just like this person who was a victim. She had a lot of her own personal demons and her family, you know, I mean, I tried to really touch on why that is and why her and her family, not that they were victims, but they definitely had a lot of circumstances that were really difficult. And, I, I did, you know, her sister and I really hit it off and, you know, had a great uh, conversation. And also her mother, I mean, they're really lovely people. And I think like any family dynamics, there's so many things that, 
you know, are, are difficult. And I think that with China's family, that's definitely the case. I don't think that Jan, uh, China's mother, was super happy with the movie. And I, she said that mm. publicly. So I think I can say that. But, mm. you know, they didn't have a good relationship. So I think, right, you know, right. it was a hard situation because we couldn't, we, couldn't, um, we couldn't take either side in the movie. There was no way to do that. We couldn't take anybody's. You know, and I knew a lot, you know, I knew that that relationship was very hard for China and, um, you know, um, and Jan's like a wonderful, I mean, her family, I, I really personally liked them a lot. I thought they were really, really lovely, but there's always circumstances behind any family that are difficult, I think. Yes, yes, there's always complex dynamics, and it's it's always unfortunate, um, you know, if, you, you know, you want certain people to, to appreciate and love the film, and, and you know, it's tough, but, um, I, you know, for what it's worth, I think the film's super interesting, and I was glad that her mother had a chance to, to talk and everything in the film that she had a voice, so in any event, um, so um, currently, where can audiences check this film out um, now? It's on Hulu, so if you go to Hulu and search for Vice Versa China, it's it's there. So um, it is still viewable. Great. And do you have um, – oh, is there anything else you want to add about this film before we um, uh, kind of talk about some other things that I didn't ask you? Oh, I really can't think of anything. I mean, I I, I hope more people will see it. It's, you know, it's definitely yeah, not too. just a film about wrestling. It's like – you know, like I think like any good sports film it has, it should have a wider audience. And I agree with you that it's definitely a feminist, a feminist portrait. So I hope people will watch it who don't like wrestling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's super cool film. Um, and uh, I was wondering, do you have any advice for first-time filmmakers that you would like to share? Um. I think, you know, and I think about this not just with being a first-time filmmaker. I think about this as being a filmmaker in general. I think the biggest advice I can give is just to not stop, you know. I think a lot of documentaries, a lot of projects, uh, you'll have a lot of people in your life telling you that it will never get finished. Like, why are you still working on it? Like, what's going on? And I think it's really about keeping a clearness of vision and keeping a, a drive for something that you have passion for. And I, I think being a first-time filmmaker, being a third-time filmmaker, whatever, it's really about having persistence and clarity of vision and just really staying, staying true to that. Well, that's great advice. Uh, yes, I think you cannot underestimate tenacity um, when it comes to making these indie films. Um, is there anything you're working on now that you'd like to share with the audience? I know sometimes people are working on things they can't talk about, but um, if you do have anything you want to share, we'd love to hear about it. Well, I'm working on a lot of a lot of movies all at once, which I think happens when you start to try to make a living as a filmmaker. But I'm working on two skydiving adjacent movies. Um, uh, one about the amazing stunt uh, parachutist named Joe Jennings, uh, and another one that is about um, the skydiver Roger Nelson. And then I'm working on a film about Patricia Highsmith, who's an amazing crime writer. 
And I'm also working on two music docs, one about the amazing musician Scott Fagan, who has definitely not gotten enough attention, but um, you will be hearing more about him upcoming. So a lot of projects that I'm super excited about and, you know, just having kind of a moment of, of being excited to be a filmmaker right now. Well, gosh, I'm so glad to hear you have all this momentum in your career. It's very well-deserved. And um, for anyone who would like to follow your career, I was wondering if you could tell us your social media handles and your website. My website is Mara, M-A-R-A-H, Strauch, S-T-R-A-U-C-H, just dot com. And I don't, I actually don't know my social media handles, but if you Google me, you can definitely find me. My website has all my social media handles and um, upcoming stuff that I'll be announcing soon. Awesome. And is there anything else you would like to share that I didn't ask you about already? Oh, gosh, Heather, I can't think of anything. That was, that was a good interview. And, uh, you know, I, I appreciate being able to talk about these movies, um, you know, well after they happen because it's, you know, they, they still exist in the world and it's, it's nice, nice to have them talked about. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I love, um, you know, I've loved watching them and I think, you know, I'm, I'm a professor and I share um, your work with my students and it's always a crowd pleaser. So yes, I hope more people check out your work. And I want to thank you again, Mara, for taking time out of your schedule to be here today. And thank you, Claire, for all your help with the tech side of things. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Heather. Yeah, you're welcome. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to The Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone.